the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through the Gospel of John. Real love is calling, listen, truth opens up your eyes. Mercy is waiting for you with every sunrise. But Jesus with the Lord, it's always the opposite. He saves the best for last. He saves the best for the last for us. This world for a non-believer is as good as it gets. For a Christian, this world is as bad as it gets. Okay? Because what is in store for us is the best stuff that is awaiting for us. Heaven and eternal rewards and home eternally with Jesus? God has saved the best for last. So don't become disheartened. Wow, what an interesting thought Pastor Gary just brought up. For a believer, this world isn't the goal. It's not the best we have. There's something so much better waiting in heaven. But for anyone who doesn't know Jesus, this is as good as it gets. How sad. Today you'll hear a story of Jesus miraculously saving a wedding, stepping in to save a family from embarrassment, while also showing his followers a little more of who he is. He's God's Son, the one who can save you and give you eternal life. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of John chapter 2 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Okay, so John tells us this was the first of the miracles of Jesus. Now, for you note takers, there are recorded without duplication between the four gospels Matthew Mark Luke and John about 36 miracles that Jesus performed there are about 36 miracles that Jesus performed 
Now, his ministry covers about three and a half years. So 36 months, three years, 36 miracles. Jesus recorded, okay, recorded only, performed about on average one miracle a month. But we know that he performed many more than that because John at the end of his gospel said he performed so many things. There's so many things that Jesus did, they can't even be recorded in the volume of the book. And in fact, it talks here in terms of miracles, and even though Jesus did many miracles, John only records eight, eight miracles. But out of the eight, six miracles are unique to the gospel of John, and this is one of them. None of the other gospels record Jesus turning water into wine, but this is the first miracle that he performs here. It is located, the miracle occurs at a wedding that is taking place in the town of Cana. Now, Cana is located in the province of Galilee. That's why it's called Cana of Galilee. Further in the Gospel of John, in John chapter 21, it tells us that Nathan, Nathaniel, the guy who was, you know, now becomes a follower of Jesus from the previous chapter, Nathaniel is from Cana. This is his hometown. Is there a connection here? We don't know. It, it, you know, chapter one ends with this whole thing with Nathaniel. Maybe Nathaniel's like, you need to come to my hometown. Maybe. We don't know. But Jesus is now in Cana of Galilee. Cana is located about five miles north of Nazareth. Cana is about 25 miles west of Capernaum, where Jesus is going to mainly be based in his, in his ministry around the Sea of Galilee. About 25 miles west of Capernaum, about five miles north of Nazareth. And so here is this occasion. Now, a wedding feast in Israel among the Jewish people would take place over seven days. Okay? They knew how to celebrate a wedding, friends. All right? It's not just you exchange your vows and then that night you have a reception and you get out the dance floor and you have some you know, DJ who often isn't the best. And, you know, and, then, and then you got some dance floor going thing and people are eating and, and drinking and they're cutting cake and all that kind of stuff. And then they go home. That's the way we do it, all right? But not the Jewish people. The Jewish people, seven days. They're going to celebrate this wedding like nobody's business. Well, what happens is, during the period of the wedding feast, they run out of wine. And so Jesus' mother comes to Jesus and said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this is an interesting dynamic that occurs here. Because first of all, I want you to know how Mary, she intimates here. Okay, like only a mother can. She doesn't come right out and say, they have no more wine. Jesus, you need to get some wine for us. You know, do some miraculous stuff here because we need some wine going again. And these days, you need to understand, in this culture, if you ran out of wine and you were the party that was hosting the feast, if you ran out of wine, it was scandalous. You were considered a social outcast because it was very... A rude to run out of wine or food for your dinner guests, they would think the lowest of you. And so Mary is trying to help somebody save face here. So she goes to Jesus, but she intimates. She doesn't come right out and say, they need some wine, you need to do something. She just says, we have no more wine. Okay. All right. Now, moms are experts at this, all right? Because I, I remember growing up, you know, my mom would just be like, the trash is overflowing. Okay. She wouldn't just say, would you take out the trash? She would just be, the trash is overflowing. Okay. So moms can get away with that. I wish, however, I had known this story at the time when I was a teenager so that I could have said, woman, why do you involve me? <laughs> just quoting Jesus, you know what I'm saying? 
Now, it sounds disrespectful, doesn't it? For Jesus to say, woman. You know, why, again, you know, we don't hear inflection. We see words on a page. It's only two-dimensional. So, you know, how did Jesus respond? Like a woman. You know, don't involve me, woman. No, it wasn't like that. In fact, here's, here's the deal. Notice he doesn't say, mother, don't involve me. Here's what's happening at this moment. And this is an important transition in the ministry, in the life of Jesus. He is now bringing separation from the maternal bond here, okay, because now he's going to be solely devoted to the will and direction of the Father in heaven. He's, he's cutting the apron strings a little bit, and so he's, this is actually not disrespectful. This is a respectful way of referring to her, but not an affectionate way like a little boy to a mom by saying mom or mother. He's calling her woman as a respectful adult-to-adult. We are now adult-to-adult. Adult. This is pure conversation here, and please understand, my time has not yet come. Now, that's an interesting phrase that he follows up with. The Gospel of John records... Seven times that Jesus refers to timing. Timing. Four times out of the seven, Jesus says, my time has not yet come. Now hold the conversation he has with his mother, and I want to just show you this real briefly here through John's gospel. The first one is right here, where Jesus says, my time has not yet come, in verse 4. But then if you just glance ahead to chapter 7, just, if you just thumb through the Gospel of John with me, I want you to just see this real briefly. Chapter 7 and verse 6. Therefore Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. Keep looking in chapter 7, verse 30. At this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Look also over to chapter 8. And verse 20, he spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. And then it shifts to the right time. Go to chapter 12, verse 23. Chapter 12, 23, Jesus replied, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Go further to chapter 13, verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. And then lastly, chapter 17 and verse 1. Chapter 17, 1. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Now here's why I point this out. Four times in the earlier chapters of John, it is specific, the time has not yet come. Time has not yet come, time has not yet come, time has not yet come. Then it transitions, chapter 12, into chapter 13, then into chapter 17, where Jesus says, time has come. Time is now. Jesus always operated on a divine timetable. And it is important for us to understand as well that even though obviously no comparison to being on a divine timetable in any sense like, you know, we're, we're like, like Jesus in, in the sense of, you know, he's unique, he's Messiah, he's on a divine timetable, it's to the cross, it's a reference to the ultimate sacrifice of dying on a cross, there's a timetable to all of this. Having said that though, I want us to all recognize that as followers of Christ, timing is an important factor. When people want to discern the will of God, you know what I often hear people wanting to know? What is the will of God? 
When people come to me and they say, Pastor Gary, would you pray for me? You know, I'm trying to discern a move. I'm trying to discern a career change. I'm trying to discern marriage. I'm trying to, you know, and all these kind of things. Most of the time, people want to know the what of God's will. Who should I marry? Should I make this career change? What company should I work for? What town should I live in? It's the what. And I think often we overlook that just as important as what is the will of God is when is the will of God. Timing is everything. You remember with Moses, Moses was raised up to be the deliverer for the people of Israel when they were slaves in Egypt. He had the what down, but he misunderstood the when of God's timing because he tried to hasten the what by what did he do? The book of Exodus records that he killed an Egyptian. When he saw an Egyptian mistreating a fellow Jew as a a Hebrew slave, Moses intervenes, because he's a Hebrew, he identifies with compassion about one of his Hebrew brothers, he intervenes, he kills this Egyptian who's whipping a fellow Hebrew. And the Bible says that he thought that because he was the deliverer, that the people would recognize that he was the deliverer. In fact, he had the what right, he was the deliverer, but he had the when wrong. It would be 40 years later before God would raise him up to go back and be the deliverer that he had called him to be. When Paul first got saved with this wonderful conversion experience on the road to Damascus, and he has this vision of seeing the Lord himself, and then he goes blind for a few days, and then the Lord uh, heals him of that, and during the, the interim, Paul assesses his life and realizes that he was on the wrong path, that receives Christ as his Savior, and his conversion until Paul is used by the Lord in ministry is 10 years. Paul just didn't get up off the ground and then launch into ministry. There was a timing to it all. For Jesus, there is a timing on his way to the cross. For you, for me, there's timing in everything. And we had better be just as concerned about the when, Lord, When do you want me to do this? When do you want me to move? When do you want me to go? When do you want me to start this? When do you want me to get married? It's the when as much as the what. Don't be only concerned about the what of God's will. Pray for the right timing. Because if you get the timing wrong, you might have the what part right. If you have the when part wrong, it's going to be a disaster. It's not the right timing. So make sure that in praying and discerning the will of God, you're praying for the right timing as well. Jesus was on a divine timetable. My time has not yet come. And then things switched. Now the time has come. Glorify yourself, Father, in my life. So he's on this timetable. Now, back to the conversation here in John 2. So he has this conversation with his mother. You know, don't, don't involve me. My time has not yet come. But his, his mother, as if not even hearing that, okay, so this is the part I'm, I'm hearing in the dialogue. It's not in the Bible. I'm hearing this. Okay, whatever, Jesus. (laughs) Servants, just do whatever he tells you to do. You know, because she gives a directive here, even though he's politely saying, ah, time has not yet come. She turns to the servants here in verse 5, and she says, just do what he tells you. As if knowing he's going to do it. All right, he's not saying it right now. He's going to do it. So just do do what he tells you. By the way, underline what she says there. These are the last recorded words of Mary in the Bible. The last recorded words that she speaks. It's not the last reference to her. It's the last recorded words of Mary. And what I think is significant about it is because as much as we should 
honor and esteem Mary as being this incredible person that God chose through whom to enter the world. We should never venerate her. We should never worship her. We should not put her on a pedestal and deify her in any way. And please note that the last words off her own lips recorded in Scripture is for us to do what Jesus says. Okay? She points us to Jesus. Do what he says. Okay? In other words, don't listen to me. You listen to Jesus. And then nearby it talks about these water jars. Each water jar were these large jars that were used in ceremonial washing so that each one could hold 20 to 30 gallons. There's six of them. So do the math. We're talking 120 to 180 gallons of water. (laughs) This is a lot of the bubbly. You know what I'm saying? 120 to 180 gallons of water. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. They filled them to the brim. He told them, now draw some out, take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. Master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize it had come from, you know, he did, the master of the banquet, the one hosting it, didn't realize what had happened here. Now, this is beautiful in that Jesus, what he does here in regards to his mother is that he obliges her one last time, but this is going to be now the separation from, I don't take my direction from you anymore, mom. All due respect, I take my direction now from my heavenly father. But he obliges her one more time, turns the water into wine. The master takes it, drinks it, says, this is amazing, says to, to the servants, this is, this is incredible. This is the best of the wine. And he says, you know, normally the best is safe for the last. Why is that? So that, you know, the dinner guests over seven days, they're three sheets to the wind now, Okay. They're sauced. So by the time they're all sauced, you don't care that it's the cheap wine at the end. So people would typically give the best wine at the beginning and that bring out the cheap stuff at the end because nobody could tell the difference by the end, okay? In this case, Jesus turns the water into wine and makes it the best, which I think is just a beautiful picture for us. How so? Because the world promises a lot up front but can't deliver and in the end what the world offers up front though it looks so sweet and tempting and wonderful up front at first proves to be at the end not as wonderful as you first thought but Jesus with the Lord it's always the opposite he saves the best for last he saves the best for the last for us this world for a non-believer is as good as it gets for a Christian This world is as bad as it gets, okay? Because what is in store for us is the best stuff that is awaiting for us. Heaven and eternal rewards and home eternally with Jesus, God has saved the best for last. So don't become disheartened about this world and living in this world. We have to be faithful and shine like the light to illuminate a dark world, but Jesus saves the best for last. So this is so typical of his character here. You have saved, at the end of verse 10, you have saved the best till now. And this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Canaan Galilee. He thus revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. So for the first time, they're recognizing there's something pretty incredible that this guy can change water into wine. Now, I don't want to turn this into you know a, a focus on the subject of wine, because I want it to be more the focus on Jesus and the beginning of his ministry and a miracle here, but I'm just going to say this much in passing. Some people, okay, you have extremes in interpreting this passage here, in this story. 
Some will say, well, it wasn't really wine, it was just grape juice. Um, look, it's wine, okay? It's not grape juice, okay? It is wine. It is oinos, the Greek word here. Uh, it is wine. It is true that in these days, wine did not have as much alcohol content typically as our wine does today, but it is wine. Now, then that's one extreme. We're like, well, Jesus, this wasn't really wine, it was grape juice, and so someone interpret this as, as a way of saying, you know, we shouldn't really you know, touch wine because it was really grape juice. It wasn't grape juice, it was wine. Some, though, want to go the other extreme and say, hey, Jesus, this is the first miracle of Jesus. You know, if it's good enough for Jesus, good enough for me, so let the wine flow. You know, and so, and so we got these two extremes. We're like, well, it really can't be wine. We got these other people who are just like, party hardy, Jesus was a partier. And look at this first miracle, let's start, you know, drinking it down. Um, don't get carried away with the story, all right? The subject of wine can be a difficult subject in some ways because the Bible speaks of it in terms of having some liberty but also some extreme caution. The topic of alcohol is mentioned 12 times in the book of Proverbs. Nine out of 12 times they are words of caution. The destructive nature of wine, the potential for it to destroy lives. Uh, wine is a mocker, beer is a brawler, is what Proverbs 20 tells us. So, you know, and, and many other passages. Nine out of 12, just in the book of Proverbs, addressing the subject of alcohol, words of caution. But it isn't to say that it should necessarily be something you prohibit, okay? Um, but there should be some exercise of caution with this. Statistics are a little varied on the subject, but anywhere from one out of 10 to one out of 15 people who take their first sip of alcohol will become alcoholics. One out of 10 or one out of 15. The the studies are a little divided on it. So that's like having a gun with 10 chambers and having one bullet in it. Are you really wanting to put that to your head? Okay. It is a difficult subject. Again, I've said this on other occasions. I've never had somebody make an appointment with me, come into my office and tell me how alcohol has improved their life. It's been the opposite. I've had people in my office say how alcohol destroyed their career, destroyed their marriages, their, their child was killed because of a drunk driver. I've had the, heart, the disheartening stories as it relates to alcohol. Nobody's come in and told me how it's improved their life. So a word of caution with it. If you look at this and go, well, Jesus, it was good enough for him, it's good enough for me, then you also have to read the rest of the story because in the last Passover meal that Jesus shares with his disciples, he says, I will not again drink of the fruit of this vine until... I give it to you in my Father's kingdom. So there will come a day when the Lord will distribute wine in the kingdom come, and when that day happens, you know, let's pull up to the table. But until then, (laughs) until then, it's not prohibited in Scripture, but it should be exercised, as with anything, with caution, because there is the potential, and some of you know all too well, there is the potential for it to become addicting and destructive. So uh, we'll leave it there for now. Again, not a prohibition in Scripture, but some strong cautions uh, from time to time. But yet, this is the first miracle. And, you know, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, Moses turns water into blood. Jesus turns water into wine. Blood is the sign of death when the Nile River turned into blood. Wine is associated with joy. It was part of the wedding feast. And Revelation 19 talks about the wedding supper of the Lamb shall come. And we as the bride will make ourselves ready. So it's interesting that the first you know, miracle of Moses is the miracle of th- that water into blood, which is a sign of death. First miracle of Jesus is water into wine, which is a symbol of joy and celebration. The law, legalism, kills. 
but with Jesus there is joy and the picture of grace. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. Pastor Gary's been going through the book of John. If you missed any part of this message, you can hear it again on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You might want to download our mobile app so you have these teachings with you on the go. That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, feel free to take some time to learn about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd love to meet you. Please join us for worship and Bible study. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other info on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We hope and pray you've been blessed by today's teaching in the book of John. Please know that we're praying for you too. Although we're out of time for today, keep reading on your own in the book of John until Pastor Gary continues teaching through this extraordinary account of Jesus' life on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go But still you know